Hi, this is Jamin Fraser, and you're listening to The Insecurity Project, solving the insecurity problem at a global level. The show is a combination of interviews with experts, authors, speakers, and individuals who've gone on to do amazing things in their life by eradicating insecurity. You'll hear real-life coaching sessions from people who are overcoming insecurity in their life, and you'll hear 10-Minute Tuesday, which is a chance for me to deliver some high-quality personal development content to help you in your own journey. I hope you enjoy the program. Now on to today's show. Okay, I'm here with Greg Bellingham. Uh, Welcome to the call, Greg. Hello, Jamie. How are you? Good to be here. Um, well, thank you. Now, for those of you who don't know Greg, Greg is the guy who I attribute to more personal growth and change in my life than any other person. He's a real hero of mine. He's a, he's a, a painful character, um, a cheeky character, and often when I talk to him, I come away feeling like I know nothing, which is painful at the time, but always useful afterwards because he kind of deconstruct all my well-formed ideas about the world. Um, and then out of that, I then uh, learn some better stuff and grow and change. So I, I've valued his friendship over the years. He's had a, a great impact in my life and, and especially in terms of my own development as a person and overcome my own insecurity. Greg has been a key guy. So I'm, uh, it's a real treat for me to be able to interview him and ask him some of his thoughts on the topic. Uh, so I'm sure we're in for a treat today with this interview. So, Greg, we'll kick off, as I've asked all the other people we've interviewed so far, just about a bit of your backstory um, and particularly what your parents taught or modelled to you about what it meant to have a good self-esteem. Um, you know, did they do a good job at that or is it pretty much just make up your own way? So, yeah, tell us a bit about what your parents gave you in terms of tools or strategies for building a healthy sense of self. Yeah, I think my, I think I probably had a background much like everyone else. I mean, I had pretty stock standard uh, parents, uh, middle class, you know, sort of born in the born in the thirties, so post you know post war kind of mum and dad. They they probably really valued security and certainty. Uh, they were of that generation where probably their parents had told them that. You know, getting a job and staying in the job and buying a house and, and, and having having your home was a really desirable thing. Um, and so they really, I think, they really loved characteristics like, you know, perseverance, persistence, consistency, faithfulness, all those sorts of things. And so I think anything that, um, pro- probably where insecurity would have launched in their world would have been when they felt uncertain or insecure about stuff. Um, and so probably they, they would try and lock down as many things as they possibly could. Um, you know, we had a, we, we, I grew up in the one house, you know, from the time that I was born to the time I left home, it was the same house, um, pretty similar for my sisters. But um, my dad was an accountant. My mum worked in a school. I played 40, my sister's did tennis and dance. So it's, it's all, it was all very predictable. It was all very same, not same, same, but all very contained. And so I think when we were in, when we were in that place, yeah, you felt, you felt secure. You know, you didn't really struggle with insecurity. I think whether they prepared me to deal with uh, insecurities that come through not knowing what's going on, through complexity or through uh, 
through shift or through change, that was that was totally different. And, and they probably weren't any more adept at dealing with that than than most people of their generation or many people of their generation. So at that level, in terms of the complex space and in terms of uh, dealing with significant change, yeah, they were probably just as, as much as C as, ever, as, as anyone else mm. uh, and probably didn't do that particularly well and didn't... And, even to this day, probably don't enjoy that. My parents wouldn't enjoy significant change. They'd try and lock things down pretty quickly. Mm. So that was the kind of working model that I started with, is that keep it predictable, you know, persevere, and, uh, and it's okay. And if it changes too much, then there's something to worry about. Yeah, right. So obviously, as you've grown up, there's been lots of change because things don't stay the same and you've had to go through school and then work out what you're going to do with your life. So I imagine you found a lot of uncertainty and complexity as you went forward. So tell us a bit about your journey and, uh, you know, how you handled those things and, um, you know, how you overcame some of those challenges yourself. What did, what did you learn in that process? A big question. I mean, I think, I think probably one of the things that I... I think one of the default positions that I always had was just a desire to belong. You know, I think, you know, I think you've often talked about you know, the most fundamental question we have is, is you know, as humans, is am I okay? Uh, and the short answer to that a lot of the time is is maybe I'm not. And so you, I think what I do is I, I just look for places where I could belong, whether, that, you know, whether it was a group of peers, uh, whether it was at a local church, whether it was uh, in a sporting team or, you know, I, I tried to find a sense of belonging, a sense of where, where I fit in. Um, and, and I think you know the challenge with that is you don't you clearly you, you don't fit in everywhere, right? You know, it's just like the world is not this big accepting cuddly bear that just says we love you. Um, you know, you're you're amazing. You fit in. In fact, it's oftentimes it's it's the opposite, right? Or it feels like it's the opposite. You feel like you're, you're doing stuff, and you go, I don't even know if I do fit in here. I don't know if I do like this. Um, and I, I think, I, like anyone else, I found that hard. I found that a, I found that a challenge. You know, there was a desire to belong, but often not a sense that that I did belong. You know, um, and so I think that was, yeah. I think you do feel insecure mm-hmm. in those moments. Well, I definitely felt insecure in those moments. Um, Hmm. So, I mean, tell us a bit about what you're doing now and then we'll work our way back to see how you got there. Sure. Um, yeah, so tell us, tell us about you now. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm one of three partners in a business called Fold7, which is, a, which is paradoxically a business that uh, helps people, helps companies largely, people and companies and organisations, uh, transition through complex change. Uh, we, uh, my partners and I, we basically go into organisations that are experiencing, a lot of the time they're experiencing a degree of trauma or difficulty as they're trying to manage change. Uh, and they come to us and they go, look, we, you know, we plug this system in and the system's great, it's just the people hate it or the people aren't using it or everyone's angry at us or we need to make this strategic shift in our business but we can't because we don't, the people aren't with us. And so... The part that we deal with is we, we help those businesses align their strategic direction with their people and make sure that the people are present. So make sure that at a strategic level, make sure that leaders are on board. At a tactical level, make sure that managers are able to 
to uh, cope and process and, and be across process and procedure and, and sort of you know kick everything into gear that they need to kick into and at a practical level work with people on the front line and make sure that those people on the front line are being taken care of and are keeping up with the, the changes that have been implemented. Uh, so that's what we do for business. Um, it's a great it's a great business. We love it. It's it's uh, it's got a lot of traction primarily because most people are dealing with continuous complex change. Mm. Uh, most organisations are dealing with that and they're realising that it's not enough just to plug something in. We actually need to bring people on the journey. Um, so historically you'd call that a change management business. The biggest gap in change management is that it's primarily that leaders uh, often commission a project, punt it out the door, throw some resources at it and then are absent. So what our business does probably uniquely to any other businesses, we engage senior leadership really effectively and we help senior leadership understand exactly what they need to do to make sure that uh, they're not just uh, commissioning a project and then and leaving it for someone else to be responsible for. So, yeah, that's what we do. That's what our business does. And, you know, we've known each other for a long time and, and I, as I watch you in this space, it seems very congruent to you and, and very much, you know, you, to use your word from the start of this conversation, it seems like you really belong there. It, it feels to me like it's aligned with your skills, your, um, the way you see the world and what you're really good at. So how did you get to that place of feeling like you're in a space where you get to exercise your strengths really make a difference and do what you're good at. Like, how did you arrive there? I imagine it wasn't just something that someone gave you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so for, it's interesting. We, you know, we, to answer that question, my partners and I, we, we sort of, when we started the business, we were trying to think of names and we thought of Fold 7. It's, it was kind of the idea that, you know, you could fold a piece of paper in half six times, but trying to fold it in half the seventh time is, is near impossible. And we, we kind of felt that in the change space that we, we'd found a way to do the seventh fold. Mm-hmm. You know? So we had a little bit of magic that other people didn't have in that space. And I think that was about the three of us kind of, and, and we all met um, quite providentially, you know, it was, it was, you know, we weren't in each other's worlds and, and then somehow, you know, in the last kind of three years, two, three years, we all came together and went, wow, we all have the same convictions about change we all have the same convictions about um, people and so it was uh, and we all feel like we have the same sort of magic is that we can actually really help people transition through complex change Mm. Um, and it can be done in a really beautiful way it can be done quite magically and people can thrive and flourish as they do this so I think um, how did I come to meet those people I don't know I, I think Providence, you know, the stars, God, in, invoke anything you want to evoke. I just found some people that shared a very common passion. Sure. Well, can I ask a better question then? Yeah. So perhaps you went through some complex change in order to be in a place where you're able then to facilitate 100%. Um, people going through complex change themselves. So I'm really fascinated in, in what you learn about yourself. Like how did you get there? How did you get to a place where you're operating out of a sweet spot? Yeah, good. Because I, I, the way, like I like um, Seth Godin. He says in the in the age we live in, um, you got to open your own doors. Yeah. So growing up, forty, fifty, sixty, even a hundred years ago, it was all about doing the, the training so that someone else would notice you and give you a job 
working for them and mm. they would open the door. But we live in a world where you've got to open your own door. Mm. Um, so for you to get to the place where, you know, as you said, your, your parents didn't necessarily equip you well to deal with complex change. Now that's the space that you are an expert in. So you yeah, don't get well, to be an expert okay, in so it. I see where you come from. So probably what, I mean, I, I went into... I went into Christian ministry for 23 years of my life mm. and Christian ministry was a moving feast of getting people who uh, essentially don't want to change. I mean, they have a fixed belief in God. That belief is largely non-negotiable um, and they gather in communities that, that are called churches and I became the leader uh, in, a, in, a, in a series of churches and in a series of religious institutions where constantly we were... Constantly, society was shifting, and we were always asking the question, how do I, as the leader of this community, this church, how do I, as the leader of a, you know, train, a Bible college training facility, how do we stay, how do we keep engaging in society? I mean, the kind of the mandate of the church is to, is to engage, is to meaningfully engage society. The problem, the problem with doing that, or the challenge with doing that, was that... Um, they weren't, a lot of people just weren't in a place where they knew how to do that or even wanted to do that or had the confidence to do that. And so as a leader in those spaces, you're constantly saying, how do I move this community of people to a place where we're meaningfully, robustly participating in the communities that we're part of? So instead of having this kind of extractionist model where we, we pull people out of the real world and into this thing called the church, which, which, which becomes more and more like a cult because you're moving further and further away from the mainstream, it's like, now, if we want to participate, we, we, need to, we need to get in there, but people don't know how to get in there or people are scared of getting in there. So that was, that was a constant challenge for 23 years of ministry, is how do we engage meaningfully? How do we participate meaningfully? So what that led me to do is it led me constantly to be dealing with the issues of changing. How do I change people that, how do I help people change who don't ostensibly want to change? Um, I, I always say that a lot of religious people are closed and sure. They've, they've locked their belief in. Um, they're sure that they're right. And so therefore it's a non-negotiable conversation. Um, and, and a lot of the time they're, they're content just to say, I'm right, everyone else is wrong. And... I'm good with that kind of dualistic universe. Mm. You know, I'm in, they're probably out. I wish they were in, but they're not. But I'm okay, Jack, kind of thing. Um, which sounds like a horrible perspective, but it's a, it is actually a horrible perspective. But it's actually the perspective of lots and lots of people. They create mm. a little closed enclave that they live in. And if you're not part of that, well, that's unlucky for you. How, how do you change that? Companies are exactly the same. Um, companies, people go into a company, they tell themselves a story, they become very comfortable. There's a degree of predictability and certainty with it. So I was always dealing with that kind of stuff, whether it was in a church or now whether it's in a company. Do you think people attach their identity to that sense oh, of certainty? Sure. Which makes it equally, I mean, makes it more challenging to, to shift? Yeah, I think, I think we definitely, I think especially in a culture that's transactional, in a culture where... Um, we get our identity out of what we do. We don't ask that kind of ontological question of, of I have to be something before I do something. I mean, that's not a conversation you have. People people at a party come up and go, hey, Jamin, what do you do? They don't come up and go, hey, Jamin, who are you? Mm. you know, um, well, not the normal ones. Anyway. <laughs> um, I might do that, but, but not many other people would. 
Um, and so, yeah, so we, we do get our identity transactionally. We do get our identity from uh, the economy of transactions we have with people on a daily basis, which, which normally just includes the people that are in my world. Mm. Um, and that's easy for that to become locked in. It's easy to become clear and certain about that. I know where I am in the pecking order. Um, you know, I, I'm either happy with that or not happy with that. I can... I can negotiate for a bit more if I feel like I'm on the lower end of the social scale and I can, I can bitch and moan and maybe get some more benefits for myself or I can get a promotion or yeah. you know, I, can, I can do bits and pieces. But, yeah, I think that's largely where a lot of people live. So then dealing with complex change at some point is going to have to be a conversation about identity. If people become non-negotiable, close and sure, and that's one of my favourite quotes of yours, I use that all the time, and people become closed and sure when they tie identity to beliefs. Um, then how do you help people be willing to explore who they are outside of what they do and yeah. what they believe so that then they get flexibility around how they're going to act and add negotiability to their life? So I think, I, think the, I think one of the ideas around complexity, and I think a guy called Dave Snowden says this better than most, anything called the Kenneth paradigm, but um, com- complexity, he, Snowden would define complexity as uh, things are complex when I don't know what I don't know. So therefore, um, you know, you might say, you know, if I know that I, if, if, if there's something that I, I, I know that I don't know, then I can call someone who does. So I don't know how to wire up a house, but an electrician does, so I can call an electrician. If things are simple, then I should probably just get that right because it's simple. Mm. If things are chaotic, then it's largely unknowable. You know, people flying planes into World Trade Centres or blowing people up or running people over. I mean, who knows what to do there? Yeah. Um, that's chaotic. And, and Snowden would say that the kind of the, the other category is, is complexity where we don't even know what we don't know. And so, therefore, I can't call an expert. Uh, I don't, it's not simple, so therefore, what do I do? In a complex place, the issue of your identity is a really big issue because you go, well, I don't know if I'm good enough. Mm. I don't know if I've got... Uh, I don't even know what this situation is going to demand of me. Mm. You know, um, And so, therefore, all the transactional stuff goes out the door because you go, well, I don't know whether my historic transactions are going to be sufficient for the season that I'm in um, or whether I'm going to be caught wanting. You know, So... You are in, in a compl- complexity. You know, a lot of what's going on in society is complex. A lot of the issue, a lot of the sticky, wicked problems that we're dealing with, the complex problems, they're just not going to be solved with a, a dualistic in-out, right, wrong, black, white, good, bad, of us, not of us kind of that that kind of duality isn't going to work. Um, and it is going to ask us to to kind of go well. Who are you, and, and what do you what do you bring to life, and what do you bring to a life where you may not know either whether you're good enough, or you, you may not even know what you need to bring. Mm. And so that so that to, to your point, that does come back to some sort of what I would call a referential industry, some true north about who you are, you know, uh, some sense of well, whether whether this is sufficient or not, this is who I am. Yeah. Um, if, if it's insufficient, it's insufficient, but it is what it is, right? Um, and so there's, a, there's certainly a degree of self-acceptance in that, of saying, look, I'm, I'm making friends with who I am, 
Um, and I'm bringing that wholeheartedly to, to the stuff that I'm doing. And yeah, nice. how do you do that? How do you yeah. do that piece of self-acceptance and separate your identity from what you do? What does that look like for you when you get up in the morning and talk us through how that happens inside you? Well, I think, I think for me, and I, I think the person that was, there's a couple of people who we can talk about later on, but who I found really, really helpful in that space. Um, I think one of the people that was kind of helpful is a guy called, you know, Carl Jung, who, who talks about uh, the ego, um, the, the, the sort of the self, the, the ego and the shadow. And, and his kind of idea is that when we're young, we, we, we project a, a persona, an ego, personality. It's essentially not real. He's, he's borrowing from Freud, you know, the idea of the, the ego and the superego. And, you know, we, uh, you know, this little id, this little self, you know, needs to get something from this big world that, you know, the superego, to use Freud's language. And so it, it, it projects an ego projection, which is I want more, I need more, you know. Um, you know, and the, and the superego of the world or the outside influences could say, no, you can't have more. But someone with a relatively well-developed ego says, well, oh, I want more because look at me, I'm, I'm cool or I'm trendy or I'm powerful. And, and it projects cool, trendy, powerful, whatever it needs to project to get more, right? Um, that kind of works until maybe uh, 45, 50, 40s, whatever, you know, um, for some people maybe who have a terminal illness maybe a little bit younger you know ego projections work they're they're inherently not real because we're not true we're not kind of cool or trendy or powerful we're, we're projecting that we are we're presenting the persona that we are but but in reality we're probably not um and so you fall through those projections and you go well what do you fall into and what what you fall into is you fall into this kind of thing that um you could say you fall into yourself, but you don't really. You fall into this thing that Jung would say is your shadow. Hmm. And your shadow is all this kind of, um, for every positive projection that you had, there's also a projection that you're so not that. Hmm. You're so much less than that. It's all, it's the kind of the, all the insecurities and all the doubt and all the fear has kind of been stuffed into this thing called the shadow. Um, and paradoxically, you can kind of make friends with that. It's, it doesn't have to be an enemy. You know, it, it, uh, a guy called Richard Raw says, you know, you, you need to do some shadow work. And shadow work isn't saying these insecurities are unreal or they don't exist or that, you know, no, no, I really am powerful when you know that you know damn well that you're not. Mm. It's like, make friends with that version of you that isn't powerful. Mm. You know, you kind of don't keep denying it, don't keep suppressing it, don't keep pushing it into the darkness. Start to embrace some of that. Start to allow yourself to be honest about who you are. Um, and then all, and then everything, you know, I love the phrase making friends with your shadow because everything starts to shift when you do that, you know. Um, your, your insecurities are... The things that you feel insecure about are normally things you probably should feel insecure about. It gives you the opportunity to make friends with that fear or to confront that fear. What do you mean by that? The things you're insecure about, you should be insecure about. Tell us what that means. Well, so, well I think sometimes we feel insecure when we ask the question, am I enough? And the answer is no, you're not. Mm. Sometimes that's actually a sober answer. Mm. 
you know, um, sometimes I'm hanging out with people that are infinitely smarter than I am or infinitely more capable than I am or skilled in a particular area. And if I say, am I better than them? The short answer is, no, you're not. You know what I mean? So it's not, it's like, you know, it's like you jump out of a four-story building and you can hit the ground. That's just a, that's a reality. That's a physical law, right? You're always going to, a physical law is you're always going to be hanging out with people or in situations where you're not enough at, at a particular level. All you can bring is yourself, right? But as you bring yourself, the thing that you're going to be reminded of is all the areas where you're different from everyone else or you're not as good as everyone else. I mean, go to a foreign country and everyone speaks a language and you're not fluid in it. You go, I kind of don't fit in because I can't speak as well as everyone else. That's that's just a reality, right? What what then that does is it, it then creates that opportunity for all those insecurities to surface, you know, uh, now, you either suppress those insecurities, in which case you just magnify them. And they go, no, no, I am good enough, when, mm-hmm. when everything inside of you is saying, no, you're not. You know? And you go, okay, well, I'm, maybe I'm not good enough at the moment, but what, do I, but what are you asking? What's this insecurity asking of me? Is it asking that I try to do something that I've never done before? Or is it asking that I acknowledge, acknowledge someone else as being fantastic at what they do is it asking for some generosity of spirit towards someone else is it asking me to forgive myself or what's what's it what's the insecurity requesting like make friends with it what's it requesting of me you know what's it telling me that's that is in some way informative about who i am and by doing that the insecurity kind of goes away it goes i've got my message across um i'll leave it with you now you know what I mean? Whereas if you suppress it, you just magnify it. That's that's a really interesting description. I haven't heard it talked of like that. And and where I go to in my mind, when I was in Germany a couple of years ago, um, you know me, I've always had dreams of greatness, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. always swinging away with wanting to be the best coach in the world and um, and always big, big plans. And so I go to Germany. It's an ambitious plan um, with zero margin of error, really. And I'm there for six months and... Uh, it's not working anywhere near as well as I'd hope it would, mm. and it's hard. And uh, I, I got confronted with this question, um, Jamin, what if you're not awesome? You know, so this insecurity says, what if, what if no one really cares about what you're saying or what you're doing, and what if you'll never be anywhere near as good as you think you you be or where you hope to be? And at at, at, at the start, I reject that question, and run away from it because it doesn't, it's not, no, that can't be true. Mm. Um, but I actually sat with it for three weeks, mm. which is probably what you describe about embracing your shadow. Uh, okay, well, so what if I'm not awesome? What if that were true? What if I'm just a guy who, you know, is going to live in Goulburn for the rest of his life, loves his wife and kids, rides bikes, enjoys running, has a few cows? Could I, could I live meaningfully as that guy if that were true? Mm. Yeah, it was so painful, but... But I came out the other side going, okay, if that, if that is all I am, well, okay, I'd be still be that guy. And, and you know what? I'd still be interested in personal development. I'd still probably read books and write books. I'd still talk to people about the stuff that, you know, I'd still try and make this stuff work in my life. So it wouldn't really change much about what I do and I would still grow in this area. But, yeah. And, and the freeing thing was the moment I kind of embraced that, the insecurity went away. So then I showed up much more relaxed, much more present, um, without the neediness or the drivenness. Yeah. And it was, you know, an amazing thing in my world. So that's a great, I mean, that's a great example of 
you know, this kind of construct of Jung's, you know what I mean? Thomas Merton takes it. Thomas Merton's a great writer. He's a contemplative writer. He's, he's dead now, but he was. Uh, he he first. He was. He was probably the first guy to term the ideas of true self, false self, separate self, right? Uh, which Richard Raw talks a lot about. Um, <clears throat> and basically, what those categories were kind of define what you were. What you were sort of saying then is that you know your um, your true self is just what it is. It's just it's just who you are, right? Uh, you, your false self is is this is the projection. It's the mm. ego projection, you know. Um, and and it's needed. You you need to have some sort of ego projection. Otherwise, you just don't ask for anything. You just become this repressed bunny that doesn't get anything because mm. it doesn't ask for anything because it doesn't. It just it's too it's too repressed, right? The problem with the problem with your ego or your or your um, your false self, because the projections aren't real. The problem with that is if you believe that they are real, something really dangerous happens. It gives rise to this, what Merton's would call a separate self. Mm. Uh, so ego projections and false self aren't bad. Uh, my kids need me to be a false self. You know, when my kids were little, my kids needed to believe that dad was really smart and when they went into big public places that dad was really powerful um, help! Help that I looked like Shrek, six foot four, you know, big lad. You know, ugly as anything. Ugly as a brute. Yeah, <laughs> Shreking in demeanour. Um, you know, so it helped that they they always felt that Dad was powerful and confident in in a crowd. You know, um, whether I was or not, you know, they didn't need to know that I might have been feeling really nervous. Mm. Um, so, so sometimes you need that projection, and other people need you to project as well. It's a, it, can, it can be essentially a false projection, but it's it's a necessary one, right? The real danger is when I believe that. Mm. When I start to really believe that ego projection, that gives rise, that gives rise to this separate self. And a separate self is someone that's lost any sense of their own their own true self, yeah. and they've never made friends with their shadow. And the danger of that person is they will do all sorts of atro- atrocious things because they're just totally disconnected from who they really are. So there's some real danger in staying in your ego too long. That that you, you start to believe the press, you start to believe the your own stuff, right? Um, whereas the opposite of what you did in Germany is you go, this environment, my ego projections in this environment are relatively ineffective because no one speaks the language or cares about an Aussie guy who's a, who's mm. a cattle farmer from you know Goulburn. Mm. So my ego projections aren't going to work, and I either have to come to terms with who I really am, which may not be awesome, especially mm. not in Germany, which, which makes me dig deeper into my shadow and go, well, maybe I'm not so great, maybe I'm just this, and you make friends with that and it kind of goes away and then you can turn up more relaxed. If, if you went the opposite direction and said, no, I am awesome and I'm going to make everyone here see how awesome I am, that person is really capable of doing some dangerous stuff. Yeah, wow. Right? So, so for me, you know, when we come back to insecurity, insecurity is an instructive thing, right? I don't, I'm, I'm not an advocate of eradicating your insecurity. It's mm. a marker. It's an indicator. It's trying to tell you something if you listen to it. Um, if you eradicate it, there's a real danger you fall into your separate self and start to become a narcissist or a mm-hmm. you know some sort of crazy person that that isn't hinged that, that isn't getting the messages that the universe is trying to get you to get, um, and isn't doing the kind of the soul work that you need to do 
to actually be a healthy person. So, yeah, good example. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, so are there any practices or disciplines, rituals that you find useful in doing that work? Because it can sound a bit abstract and um, maybe even complex for people. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that, that work of embracing the shadow and making friends with it rather than giving in to the false self and the, um, you know, becoming someone who's detached from all reality? Well, I mean, there's that old, um, there's, a, there's an old Cat Stevens song which says, I'm looking for a hard-headed woman. It's a great song if you've never heard it. You know? I, I found a hard-headed woman in my wife. So um, the reason that I say that is that I have spent my whole life married to someone who is just a very realistic, very grounded human, puts, puts up with my nonsense, you know, to a point, to, to a very limited point, and, and, then, and then requires me to sort of participate properly, you know, um, uh, I also, I mean, as I said, I'm in business with, um, I've got two business partners who are uh, outstanding, grounded humans. We have very honest relations, we have very honest conversations, very in a very transparent relationship. So I would say, you know, I pursue things like trans, you know, responsibility, accountability, transparency, um, fundamental things like telling the truth. Um, I mean, just 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 simple things, you know. I mean, I'm not, these are not great spiritual practices. I have some spiritual practices. I journal. Mm. I write. I'm a voracious reader. Yeah. But you know, surround yourself. You know, friendships like the one with you and other people. All my friendships aren't always enjoyable. A lot of, a lot of my friendships sometimes pinch a little bit and, and are uncomfortable because I've, I've probably given a lot of my friends the right to to be very candid and open. Um, but that, that's what keeps them real, right? That's what keeps reminding you that uh, you're not this wonderful person that you're making out that you are, um, that you're probably better than that, but in a much more grounded way. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm just reminded about some stuff I read about self-doubt recently that, um, you know, often people are, again, on a mission to eradicate all self-doubt, but that self-doubt could be actually really useful in the same way because it's... It's requiring something of you. It's asking a question. And if you shut that question down and ignore it and just pretend that that's, that's not, not even possible that those doubts can be real, then you become dangerous and removed from reality. Yeah. But to actually have a conversation with that doubt and explore what it's asking and to make friends with it um, and come out the other side grounded and realised and then able to participate out of who you really are. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, I think you know, the person who doesn't want to concede anything about insecurities or self-doubt isn't having these sorts of conversations because mm. they just don't have the awareness or they're just not prepared to concede any, any territory to this at all. That's a dangerous person, right? Yeah. Um, because when they do feel doubt, then they're going to find some sort of behaviour that masks that. Mm. Uh, and that, that's a risky behaviour because it's a reactive behaviour. It's not a reflective one. It's not... It's not responding. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not engaging in its environment. It's kind of. It's. It's kind of going to force its agenda on whatever it comes across. It. That's mm. not a very negotiable kind of human. Mm. That's a person that's going to end up closed and sure. Um, you can do that in a religious organisation. You can do it in a political party, or you can do it in your own psyche. You can do it in your own mind. People who are just so shut down that that you know 
you know, the, the blessing of self-doubt is it causes you to pause and go, hey, hey, what, yeah. what's this about, yeah. you know? Um, am I being the best version of myself that I can possibly be? Or, um, and if you're not, um, th- th- then you need, to, you need to change, right? Um, a person who doesn't do that is a scary person. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I probably would avoid... One of the reasons I got out of organisational religion was because it was was too hard to manage those sort of people. Yeah, and doubt's not really permitted a lot of the time in those spaces. It's just here's here's the truth, believe it, defend it, reproduce it. Yeah, and that becomes a coercive, controlling environment. That's that becomes an environment of dominance. You know, I was having a conversation on the way down here to meet with you this morning, and my partner and I, business partner and I, were talking about um, the recent events that are happening in university colleges around hazing. I mean, these are behaviours based in dominating people, controlling people, making people conform to what we want. Um, it's, it's ugly. It's, it's dehumanising and it's, it's really dangerous. It's, it's not helpful at all. Mm. And what it won't help people do is it won't, people, it won't help people manage complex change mm. uh, because it's a closed and short behaviour. It doesn't bring people into a place where they can meaningfully respond to stuff that's emerging in their world. Yeah, well, it's, it's so useful. Thank you. Um, you've mentioned a few key authors, Merton, Richard Raw, Jung, Freud. Are there any key books that you would recommend on the subject uh, to help people kind of get their head around embracing the shadow and, um, you know, these ideas around finding the true self? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think definitely you, Richard Rawl is kind of your first starting place with any of this, and you could pick up any Richard Rawl book that you wanted. I can't remember specifically the one uh, that Richard wrote. Um, but he, he'd, be, he'd be the first guy I'd, I'd visit, Richard Rawl. You can read Jung, but it's hard. It's, yeah. He's a hard read. Uh, Richard Rawl's a much more uh, sympathetic read. Mm. Okay, excellent. Um, so for people looking to find you, where, where do you hang out? Are you on social media at all? Where's the best place for people to come find Greg Bellingham? You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, no problem. And you can find our company on the internet, uh, which is fold7.com.au. That's fold7 F- with a D. F-O-L-D, numeral 7, uh, .com.au. Mm. And you can look that up on LinkedIn as well and you'll find me and our wonderful business and business partners right there. Fantastic. I'll include links to those uh, websites in the show notes. So uh, thanks so much, Greg, for being willing to have this conversation. Useful as always. Plenty of stuff to think about and stuff that I hadn't even considered as usual. So really appreciate it. Uh, So that's the Insecurity Project podcast for today. If you want to find out more information, you can check out my website, jamonfraser.com. And I look forward to speaking to you all again soon.